Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're supposed to start uh, at the triennial second year at 1340, but I want to back up to actually just two verses before that because it makes a little more sense. 1338. All right, so let's start at verse 38, chapter 13. If a man or a woman has the skin of the body streaked with white discolorations, Got it. and the priest sees that the discolorations on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it is a tetter broken out on the skin. That person is pure. Go on. If a man loses the hair of his head and becomes bald, he is pure. If he loses the hair on the front part of his head and becomes bald at the forehead, he is pure. But if a white affection streaked with red appears on the bald part of the front uh, or at the back of the head, it is a scaly eruption that is spreading over the bald part of the front or the back of the head. The priest shall examine him. If the swollen affection on the bald part of the front or at the back of his head is white, streaked with red, like the leprosy of body, skin, and appearance, he is amongst the leprous. He is impure. The priest shall pronounce him impure. He has the affection on his head. Okay. So we are getting the... (laughs) Right, it's a very moving Torah portion. Um, So we are getting the the diagnosis, the criteria, whereby one diagnoses the disease called Sara'at. So that's why this is called Tazria, the Torah portion. We're dealing with the disease called Sara'at. And the only one... (laughs) The only one who can diagnose Sara'at is who? The priest. So the priest is the only one who can diagnose Sara'at. There's lots of stuff that goes on with people's skin and scaly affections and white streakings and all kinds of fun things um, to ask any dermatologist. Uh, but only the priest can diagnose that the whatever's going on is in fact Sara'at. And if one has Sara'at, one is rendered... Impure. impure. So we talked about this last week, right? They are impure, meaning they are disregular, right? They are thrown out of ritual regularity and become tame. They become impure. But again, it takes the priest to declare tzara'at in order to say, okay, the person is now tame. And let's go to 45. Uh, as for the person with a leprous affection... The clothes shall be rent, the head shall be left bare, and the upper lip shall be covered over, and that person shall call out, impure, impure. (laughs) The person shall be impure as long as the disease is present. Being impure, that person shall dwell apart in a dwelling outside the camp. Go on. When an eruptive affection occurs in a cloth of wool or linen fabric, in the warp or in the woof, of the linen or, or, or the wool, or in a skin, or in anything made of skin, if the affection uh, in the cloth or the skin, in the wrap or the woof, or in any article of skin is streaky, green, or red, it is an eruptive affection. It shall be shown to the priest, and the priest, after examining the affection, shall isolate the affected article for seven days. On the seventh day, shall examine the affection. If the affection is spread in the cloth, whether in the warp, or the wolf, or in the skin, but for whatever purpose the skin may be used, the affection is a malignant eruption that is impure. The cloth, whether wart or wolf in wool or linen, or any article of skin in which the affection is found, shall be burned, for it is a malignant eruption that shall be consumed in fire. Okay, so we're going to get what happens if not, right? And So I just wanted you to see that this is not just on people. It is also in clothing. clothing. And it is also sometimes on a building, right, on the inside of a house. So the treatment is very similar for all of it, like how it's handled is very similar on all of it. Obviously, if it's on the person and it's tzara'at, you don't burn the person. But if it's, if it's a, a garment, you can you burn the 
garment. Uh, and so this gets translated, Sarad gets translated, as we see at chapter 14. God spoke to Moshe saying, this shall be the ritual for a leper at the time that he is to be cleansed. But it's the Mitzorah. It's the person with Sarat. The person who has Sarat is called the Mitzorah. So the Mitzorah, here's the ritual for how the Mitzorah is going to be cleansed at the time that the Sarat is deemed by the priest to be gone. All right. So that the priest deems that the Sarat is gone means by definition this cannot be leprosy. This is not Hansen's disease. We are very clear about that. We know that. Scholars have known this for a long time. But translators choose to leave the translation as leper and leprosy in order to communicate the kind of reaction that Sarat caused in the community. So when we think leper, when we think leper colony, we think, you know, like how people flipped out about someone having leprosy, uh, even though leprosy is not really contagious. It's, it is contagious. The bacteria can be transmitted, but it, it's a much more involved process of transmission than just casual contact. So there was no need to separate the leper, but people did because they had this visceral reaction. All you have to do is think of the early AIDS epidemic. That's all you have to do. Still, if you have a child, let's say, who's diagnosed as HIV positive, right, there are parents who won't let other kids play with that kid. They won't let them touch playground equipment that that kid has touched, right? So there's this irrational, completely, and I, and I don't mean this judgy, I just mean ignorant response, right, meaning ignorant of the facts and how something is transmitted. There's this ignorance and this, and this, and this, um, Visceral response that happens in certain cases of illness or, or you know, a different kind of condition. Uh, when I talk to kids about this, because I have to talk to at least two children every year about this parsha, <laughs> and the years when they're read separately, Tazria Matsora, it's four kids, two on Tazria, two on Matsora. So I'm always glad when the parshas combined. So it's only two kids. Um, but when I talk with them, I really do ask them, I say, talk to me about some things that make us go ew, mm-hmm. right, and make us want to push somebody away. They do not have a problem <laughs> coming up with sure. stuff that we go ew, right? And um, they get it. People, with diff- people who are differently abled, right? That's, you know, put that over there where I don't have to deal with it, right? So we, we talk about lots of different things that they see that we as a society shun. Uh, and so what we talk about a lot is what we're going to get in 14, at the beginning of 14, is here's the ritual to bring them back into the camp once they've been cleared of Tzara'at. They are no longer a Mitzorah. They're no longer a Mitzorah. We have no way anymore of bringing people back into the camp once they are not a cancer patient. We, we, I have so many people whose lives are defined by being a Mitzorah. Right. For what, right? And the Mitzorah lives outside the camp. That is not a punishment. That is quarantine. Mm-hmm. Right? It was on, they understood that something about Sarat was contaminating. It, it, it was possible for it to infect the camp. But remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have a lot of explanations for why things happened. So often in the ancient world, it was because God was displeased with you that your house would get this blight on it, that your clothes could get sarat, that you would get, God forbid, sarat, right? So it was an indication that something was wrong. Something in the family, something in the, you know, clan was off. Uh, and so you wanted to take that person out so it didn't contaminate the rest. Yeah. This word, does it come from the root Sora? Sarot, I think, is Suris is the Yiddish for Tsaarot. Right? Sadnesses. 
Trouble. So it's still trouble. Troubles. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, um, because this is a lot of trouble. It's, it, let, let me look. But I want to say, I want to say, and I'm, I can't spell in English, as I say a million times, um, but I think tsa'ar is trouble. Tsa'arot is what you're calling tsuris, right? Troubles. We're dealing with tsara'at. Right? So this is tsadi ayin resh. This is tsadi resh ayin. I'm going to check on this because I think Solda in Yiddish is spelled with an H after the resh. Here? And there's no ayin. Ah, oh, right. Tsara. No, you're right. You're totally right. Tsara. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, we can check the etymology of Tsara'at and see if it lines up. But your, your guts are screaming <laughs> that there's a connection, right? Your kishkas are gushrying that there's a connection here, right? Okay. So, we should look up the etymology and maybe, maybe it's so. We can just make But, but in any case, if you had, in any case, if you had Tsara'at, you had big tzarots. <laughs> big time. <laughs> yeah. I want to use the English translation and ask, I think you may have answered it. Okay. The difference between affection, right, it's happened, and affliction. And I think you answered it because an affliction you can't get rid of. The thing that happens here. Hopefully you can get cured. And you get, is that the difference? So affection here is, um, yes, it's like what we would call a lesion, a blemish, yeah. uh, right? It's something that has affected the skin, and you can see the affection. But it's also an affliction. It's yes. something bad. Yes. And I, so first my question was, why do they translate it this way instead of affliction? Uh, because I think affliction means something else. It's more like plague. Well, that's what I think you explained, that this can get better. The yes. Can, uh, time. But an affliction can go away, too. God afflicted the Egyptians with frogs. Then they went away. Right? The frogs weren't eternally in Egypt. But uh, So it's more... I mean, it's more like we would say disease, lesion. Right? That one is a bigger kind of concept of you're afflicted with something, yeah. right? How do I know that? Because of the affection on your skin. Right? Symptom. I, I, that's, I, affection is a symptom. Affliction is the, what the bigger what category is. So warp and woof. So when yeah. you, when you weave, yes. there's the warp and the, and the warp it? and the wolf. It's, it's, it's part of the loom. It's part of the loom. No, it's no, the, no, when no, you no. look at the fabric, yeah. there's threads that go this way oh. and threads that go oh. this way. Which is which? Okay. So one's the warp and one's the wolf. Wait. I don't know which okay. is which. I don't know which is which. I love that there's names for that. That's yeah. Just yeah. Of course. Right. The warp and the wolf. <laughs> right. So the warp and the wolf. <laughs> It's <laughs> a classic, the warp and the wolf. It's a classic. It's a classic. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, so, okay. I'm not going to deal a lot more with the affections uh, because it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, but so we're talking about people who are isolated because they're Tame. You don't want this to spread. You're freaking out like about something's going on in there. We don't know what it is, but like, Put it somewhere else, but then a big part of this is how do you know that the person is clean? How do you know that they're done? The priest says so. The priest says so, and lots of times in here it says you know, and the priest looks and sees, and if seven days later you know, it, and then it, or if it's not gone, then does it last seven days, and is it cleared after seven days? What this means is the priest is checking right. on the person. Constantly. So he is going to. He's going to them to check them. So the priest has to keep track of everybody who's been placed outside the camp and has to bring, you know, a progress report 
back, right? So the the the, the most sacred, the the embodiment of the holiest, purest stuff in Israel goes to the tzara'at and continues to check on the on, uh, sorry on the mitzorah and continues to to do that until the mitzorah is clear. So how do they deal with? I mean, maybe it never happens, but if the priest ever was afflicted, if the priest ever gets sick. And then how do they deal with that? The, Torah does, does not cover it. It doesn't. Torah does not discuss what if a priest gets Saran. Mm. Mm. So the so the priest goes and continues to check on the Matorah. Right? So already just let's keep that in mind. That even the person's outside the camp, but is constantly having someone like not just somebody, the embodiment of the holiest, sacredest, most important relationship to the divine comes to them to check what's happening and then performs the ritual to bring them back. I have a, a question on an interpretation of um, what would happen if the pre- when the priest goes there and if he is safe. You know, the priest knows what kinds of contact you can have or what kinds you cannot. He, he's examining them. He's not making out with them. Uh, and they respect Presumably. Him. Right, and they respect him to know, let's not touch him with our infections. Or, um, and my, I'm just assuming and I'm imagining that that's why he was safe to go there, because he was so well-respected. And he knew the type of contact you could have. He was just examining them. This is just my... Holy guess. <laughs> I think what I'm what I'm getting at is the message was very clear that the person is not unacceptable before God, right? They are impure. They are unclean, as is a woman after childbirth. So impure can't mean bad. Right. Or you'd never have a child, right? And that God forbid, right? That was the greatest thing you could do. But you were unclean afterwards. You were impure. You were dysregular. Anybody who's had a baby gets it. You're dysregular for like six months, or actually the rest of your life. But the, the state of impurity, I think it's very clear that to have the priest be the one who does this and diagnoses and checks and examines and then brings the, does the ritual to bring them back is saying very clearly, this does not mean this person is not in relationship to the divine, is, is somehow separate because they're in a state of Disregularity, right? I think that's a very important point, and we're going to look at what Rabbi Maurice Harris does with that. So let's keep that fact in mind. They're they're quarantined, and the but the priest continues to visit them and check on them. And then let's look at what happens when they're cleared at fourteen, chapter fourteen. God said to Moshe, saying, this shall be the ritual for a leper at the time that he is to be cleansed. When it has been reported to the priest, the priest shall go outside the camp. Thank you. If the priest sees that the leper has been healed of his scaly affection, the priest shall order two live, clean birds, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop, to be brought for him who is to be cleansed. The priest... Page what? Six six zero. Yes. Okay. All right. If the person is clean, the priest orders two live clean birds, cedarwood, crimson, crimson stuff, and hyssop to be brought for him who is to be cleansed. The priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel. And he shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the crimson stuff, and the hyssop, and dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He shall then sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the eruption and cleanse him, and he shall set the live bird free in the open country. The one to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe in water. Then he shall be clean. After that, he may enter the camp, but he must remain outside his tent seven days. On the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair, of beard, of head, of beard, and eyebrows. When he has shaved off all his hair, he shall wash his clothes and bathe his, and bathe his body in water. Then he shall be clean. On the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish, 
Three-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in for a meal offering and one log of oil. These shall be presented before Adonai with the man to be cleansed at the entrance of the tent of meeting by the priest who performs the cleansing. So there's a couple of parts to bringing someone back. One is a ritual that the priest performs. The priest acquires what needs to be acquired and does this ritual, which we'll talk about in a second, with the mitzorah. Then the mitzorah does a ritual purification and stays outside their private dwelling. Right, So they come first into the camp. Then they wait another what, eight days. Right, So they do a ritual purification coming back into the camp. Then they wait eight days and do a ritual purification before entering back into the intimacy of their private home. But right? they, they stand outside the tent. Well, presumably they just live for eight days outside Which the tent. Which puts them in the community. Yes, so that's why I was saying there's a there's a step for coming into the community, right? A ritual by the priest, and then uh, mikvah. Then there's another eight days. After which there's another mikvah before they enter the intimacy, the intimate space of their own family tent. So there's two steps to coming back. You don't come right from being outside right back home. There's a certain wisdom there. Mm-hmm. When you've been dysregular, when you've been away, when you've been out of whatever, you don't come right back home, put your suitcase down, honey, I'm home. You go to a halfway house. You go to yes. a halfway house. You go somewhere first where you try to come back into communal life, coming back to civilization, coming back to the familiar, coming back to your small town. But but you don't just go right back home and start your routine transition. again. You transition. You need, it seems Torah is saying there needs to be a transition. It's like astronauts coming back from space. Astronauts coming back from space. People coming back from war. Right. Right. How many people try to take their own lives because they go from Afghanistan to boom their apartment and they're supposed to like watch TV and go to the grocery and barbecue on Sunday with the guys with beer like it's like we do we do a terrible job a terrible job of bringing people back from what and this was considered dangerous we, we, we do a terrible job of transitioning people from states of danger to regularity. Because we don't want to deal with the reality that it takes transition, that we, we, we all need that sense of, okay, this is what happened, processing that, and this is the process to make you know, and, and why are we not in touch with that? What are we avoiding? We're not avoiding the fact that they need transition. What are we avoiding? We want to run from what we have sent them to. If they need... Transition's not a problem. Nobody has a problem with transition. Transition means that something happened, something happened right. that was horrifying that they need time and a process to transition right. back from. And that's what we don't want to talk about. That's what we don't want to face as Americans, is that we put them in that horrible position, and I would go further, and at least for me, I'm not talking about anybody else, but for me, the other difficulty about that is I know who we pay to go over there. We pay brown people and black people and poor people. We don't, our kids don't go. So I'm aware that I have a lot of like right stuff about the fact that I know who we send over there, people who couldn't go to college otherwise. And, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that they have a path to college and, and some people need the kind of discipline that, that, that the armed forces give. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with service. I'm saying we put people in harm's way and we draft people who don't have a lot of other options, and that's probably how it's always been. You either captured people who went to fight for you, because who wants to go do that? It's the same with jail. We do not transition. Ah, ha, ha. Okay, so that's where we're going. Yeah. That's where Maurice Harris goes. Uh, but I want to, but to go to Maurice Harris next, I want to say, notice that the two steps are, so the priest has a ritual, then there's a, a cleansing by the person to come just back into the community, then there's another cleansing before they come into the private space, then the, what then what happens? The person brings an offering, right? 
The person brings an offering of, and in this case, it's a guilt offering because if we're associating sara'at with sin or some kind of something they've done to deserve it, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm saying that's the ancient worldview. If they somehow earned this condition, then it makes sense they bring a guilt offering and a sham so that they're, they're cleansed not only now of tzara'at, they're cleansed of whatever brought it on. So if you say this is the ancient worldview, do we have evidence of other cultures? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You don't even have to go to ancient cultures. Think about leprosy. That's not contagious. Leprosy, they left them on islands. They, you know, family members never saw people again. Lots of families stopped visiting somebody who had leprosy. So there isn't a point to which leprosy is contagious? Like I said, if you get very close, if there's an open wound, and you wait, we think mucosa, you know, but then you're you're making out with somebody who's got it. You're not. It's not easily transmittable. So it's not like everybody around them was getting it, and that's why they quarantined them. You know what I'm saying? Like the the quarantine is about that, the stigma, the reaction, the you know, that's what had them. And then you don't visit them. You don't have to touch them to visit them. But people like cut their folks off. There was such a stigma about it. So, wouldn't the transition be the opposite way too? If somebody's coming back from war or something, the home they're coming back to, people in my at home also need time and effort to transition. Sure. Their present. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yes. Um, and Torah seems to have some wisdom around that. You know that. We don't exactly necessarily follow. <laughs> right, follow. Thank you. Or you know, or we we, we just don't and don't get it. And then Maurice Harris is going to talk about other ways that we don't get it. Um, I, I, I've I've taught from this book before. I was so excited when I found this book. Rabbi Maurice Harris is a Reconstructionist rabbi who is fantastically amazing. Um, I've taught from the women's Passover event from his book Moses. Right. Um, oh, fabulous awesome. stuff. Moses the Stranger. Uh, and so then when he wrote a book on Leviticus, I was so excited. No Have you ever heard me quote Aviva Zorenberg on yeah. Leviticus? Yeah. No, you haven't. Because Aviva Zorenberg hasn't written a commentary oh, okay. on Leviticus. But we know we've heard the name. Well, Genesis, Exodus. Genesis, Exodus should go Leviticus, Numbers, but she skipped Leviticus. Because who wants to read about Leviticus? Who wants to try to figure this out? So I was thrilled when Maurice Harris wrote this book, Leviticus, You Have No Idea. So we're going to look at a couple of pages, and I had the great good fortune to speak with him about something else recently on the phone. Uh, and so I told him that I said, I teach from your books in, in my class. I just said, like, at this podcast. So, um, so I'm going to send him this, a link to this podcast. Uh, all right. So can someone do something? Um, air? Yes. There's just no air moving in here. Tank tops are your friend. Yes, there you go. Tank tops layering. You know, I dress at home. It's a problem. You dress at home, what weather's like at home, and then I'm yeah. sitting here like... But you have to dress in a tank top. That's something else, though. You can feel. All right, so where are we? We are... Well, tell me the page I gave you. What page did I give you? 44, 45. Okay, so starting at 44, let's look at Maurice Harris, uh, the, the third chunk down in 21st century America, yes? Yeah. In 21st century America, we rarely quarantine people for physical illness. Modern medicine is such that this drastic measure is hardly ever needed to protect society. <laughs> all, all the jackets go on. <laughs> no. The main reason that we in America take people today and require them to go live outside the community in order to protect everyone else is from some danger they might pose. The, where do we do that? It's through our criminal justice system. We put people in prison, huge numbers of people, compared to any other democracy on earth. Go to page 45. If serious crime is like Sara'at, then what does the Levitical model suggest we do to respond to it? Well, first of all, it suggests that we take the offender and confine him or her outside the community where he or she can't cause harm to others. Public safety is imperative. All right, so, and he's saying that, okay, if somebody's criminal behavior has reached the level of posing a risk to others, yes, right? You, you need to remove them from the 
community because public safety is absolutely imperative. Okay, we can accept that. If we continue to follow the steps involved in Leviticus 14, the next thing we see happening is that the Israelite priests were required to routinely visit with and assess the afflicted person's state of health or disease. One of the priest's constant questions during these visits was, is this person healed to the point that he or she can return to the community? The priest would examine the person carefully and make a judgment. In translating this notion to how we deal with the crime and punishment today, I think that what this step in Leviticus points to is a criminal justice model in which we would require spiritual mentors to visit frequently with people who have been incarcerated for the purpose of assessing whether they are healing from their, quote, behavioral illness and whether they are ready to return to society. We just had a huge conversation at the Board of Rabbis about the fact that there is a crisis in Jewish chaplaincy uh, in prisons, uh, and the organization that was paying for that and organizing that, it was no longer doing that, and so they brought it to the Board of Rabbis, people who were concerned about this, to say, how can you all help us try to figure out how to provide chaplaincy services uh, to Jewish prisoners? And like, and, and it's a huge quagmire. You would think, we, oh, no problem, we will sign up to help, right? It is a huge Nightmare to try to get clearance. Like if you have a rabbinical student who wants to do that as an internship, by the time they get clearance, the end the school year's over. Wow. So the the system is set up not to support not to support spiritual counseling for prisoners. It's actually they put all these kinds of you know roadblocks, roadblocks in place to allow people to be able to be qualified to not have to go through this huge, huge, huge procedure every time, you know, um, to to see somebody. There's a huge list of people who want to be seen, and and right now there's there's nobody to see them. So um, so I think he's. I'm, what I'm going to tell you is at least here in L.A. he's not wrong. That w- w- I mean he's not he's not saying anything yet about his opinion, but uh, I'm saying he's lifting up. What, what if people had who were incarcerated had regular visits from a spiritual counselor to check and assess how are they doing, right, on whatever the illness is that drives someone to criminal behavior? No, I was just going to point out how we do meditation every day, every week after this because we all need to stay spiritually fit. And how do we do that? We do it in community. We do it through meditation, right? And so prisoners need it. More than ever, so. right? Uh, and are more isolated, right, than ever. than ever. So this is why I was harping on the priest yeah. goes to them, right, and and continually checks in, right, right. Our and he's going to point out, but our prisoners, right, often are sent purposefully by the judge far away from their family right. to discourage visitation. Um, so it's do the imams have more an easier time getting clearance because okay because no. I know that there's a huge recruitment or growth of the Muslim faith in prisons. Yeah, no. It's the same process for everybody. All right, and, and my bet would be <laughs> not only would it not be easier. Yeah, it would be right now. Are you right. kidding? All right, so look at the bottom paragraph. So looking at what happens next. So he's lining up, right? He's just putting this out there, which I think is an interesting way for us to think about this. So what would happen next, right? The priest and the healed person perform a sacred ritual. And then when the person is finally permitted back into the community, he or she accompanies the priest to the central sanctuary and makes ritual offerings. This is important because upon re-entry, the person who was healed from Sarat is brought to the most sacred and precious place in the entire community. And at that holy site, in public, she or he presents a sin offering, an offering expressing remorse and a desire for atonement. Remorse? For the fact that they had been inflicted? Mm-hmm. Well, that they had sinned. That they had sinned. Okay. So, because the Tzara'at victim is assumed to have sinned. That's why they got Right, that's and, why they got the curse. Okay. Right. So, so this person, the person who's guilty of a crime, would have a ritual in public at the most sacred site to say, I'm sorry. And to, to ask, right, to be Forgiven. forgiven. May I ask you a question? Please. That is a little off the base, but thinking about the red tent. Uh huh. Does, does a woman have to go in fr- every month in front of 
the whole community and no, because there's no assumption of guilt. All right, she hasn't done anything wrong. I, I'm assuming we're not getting to that today, but um, no, she just has a ritual of purification. And, and what about the people who are old and sick and, and died from this? They're not considered that they died because they did something wrong. Again, this is a disease that goes away. They're, they don't die of this. We think leper whose body gets eaten away. That, that is not what this is. This is think psoriasis. Okay. A scaly white affection where the skin. Think um, there are what's impetigo, right? You know, there's stuff where the hair is white, where the skin is affected. Right? So it's it doesn't kill them. We have to remember that. So he gets it that we're cynical. If you look at page 46, he gets it that we, we might react really cynically to this. I'm glad I'm in a group that doesn't. Um, y'all aren't going, what? That makes no sense. Right? So we get, we get it, right? Where he's going. I think this is a great group for that reason. That y'all get it. You get where he's going, right? So look at that second paragraph. Uh, he says, I, I can usually imagine cynical responses to this whole line of thinking. Um, but he talks about... Um, the criminal justice system and how broken it is, right? It has also become so expensive that it is decimating state budgets and causing other important areas of state government like education and support services for at-risk kids to be cut for us to put people away and keep them there and not and not um, rehabilitate them and bring them back into the community, right? This is a seriously messed up cycle, he says, right? Yeah. All right, go to the next paragraph. As many who study crime and punishment have written about in the U.S., we now incarcerate a much higher percentage of our population than any other modern industrial country on Earth. Yet, as a society, we don't seem to feel much safer. So if the argument is you have to lock them up right. to protect the public health, to protect the public good... Okay, we're locking up more people than ever, and apparently don't feel any safer. Furthermore, we've put a huge number of people in prison for nonviolent offenses. What happens when you do that? How do they come out? They often come out now attuned to violence. Furthermore, we have put a huge number... In other words, unlike the way quarantine was used in Leviticus, we don't limit our use of prison sentences to crimes in which the offender poses a clear risk of harm to others in the community. Drop down. So uh, Leviticus 14 offers us a model in which quarantine is used strictly for public safety and the offender pays for debt to society by bringing offerings to the sanctuary, which can be culturally translated in this thought experiment to the idea of contributing something of value to the health of the community as a whole. What if that were the way we brought prisoners back, or I shouldn't say prisoners, someone who's been in prison back, is to say, okay, so now you've, you've paid your debt, and now we're going to have you do something to contribute to the, to the health of the community, and we will reward you for that. Right. right? How many of them have a hard time getting a job right. once they have a record? And, and so then you're, you're continuing, you're perpetuating the cycle that, that leads to recidivism. Right. There's even an article in the New York Times today about um, marijuana possession, people who are in prison for that, and how everybody is just going to blind eye and not even thinking about getting them out or, or not selling. Right? This is, I just heard something on NPR, I don't know if it was the Philippines, where a lot of women are being imprisoned for, huh? Thailand. Thailand for, for possession, like in small amount. And, and so then their lives, no one will hire them when they get out. They're, they're in prison, so they can't take care of their families. And it's for something minor. And, and it's a huge problem in Thailand. And it's like, so what is that about? Our, our, and, and that whole conversation about criminalizing drug possession and use, right? That, that when we criminalize it, now you make them Prisoners is that is that a fantastic solution to dealing with with uh, drugs? Have, um, Richard, did you have your hand up? Um, I did, but um, I think the, the fact that Leviticus 14 is, is specifically talking about disease and not crime is is making my question. Okay. I, um, I don't I don't want to. Well, we also have criminalized um, asylum seeking. And yes. I was able to do one of these visits 
um, there is CLUE, you know, Clergy right. and Laity United for Economic Justice, has been realizing that the people that they mostly were trying to help with economic things like uh, fair wages, or a great degree, are many of the populations undocumented. So they now have a way that you can actualize this by not having to go into a prison, but volunteers uh, go to the immigration detention center, which is a prison for immigrants or people who came without documents. Um, and these people who we visited just signed up to get visited by a stranger because they just wanted a visit. We weren't going to interview them for asylum. We were going for chaplaincy, just to talk. And um, it was so appreciated. It was such a strange experience to go and say, hi, for an hour. What are you doing? What do you like to do in here? What are the ways you spend your time? Tell me about your children. Um, and it's something that any of us any, can do. I, I did. It's in San Bernardino. It's way the hell out of, you know, where your normal day takes you. But it is very much like this and very similar to it being, um, it's not a punishment. I mean, he, the one difference that I'm seeing here is we're talking about affliction with a disease and punishment. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we are, are imprisoning people not because we need to protect society, but also because we want to say, bad, you did bad, you're going to be punished. So I would disagree with you. I would say we are the people who want to lock them up think they're protecting society. I think it's both. I think they think they're protecting our rights and our whatever by saying you came here without documents on purpose, knowing what you did. That is a crime that you need to be punished for. And you're lucky it's only deportation. No, I, I agree with you. I was speaking about other crimes, violent crimes. I think we also, as a society, talked about it as punishment. I agree with the immigration and it's both. Right? So we just talked about possession. Yeah. Right? We choose to criminalize that. We choose to say, if you possess marijuana in one of the other states now, right, right you go to jail or prostitution. Right? We're, we're right. persecuting. We're punishing the women who are trying to make a living, right, instead of legalizing it and taxing it or whatever, or if you want to punish somebody, go after the men who are buying sex, right? So we, but they, so it's who we choose to criminalize and that we're criminalizing asylum seekers, you know, or people who come here for a better life for their kids. We've chosen to criminalize that and say that is a threat to our society, Right? The rhetoric is very clear from the folks who are clear about this. They couldn't be clearer that it is a threat to the American way of life. And so, lock them up. And so what Laura's pointing to is, you didn't have any specific skills that you went there with. They got treated like a human being for an hour. They got human contact. Another human being said, I want to come see you because you're a human being and deserve that just because you're a human being. And for that hour, they are not a detainee. They are not an illegal immigrant. They are not undocumented. They are a human being. And this is what he's trying to point out about the priest going to see the Mitzorah is the message is clear. You are still a member of this community and a valued member of this community that we fully intend to bring back to regularity. We assume you will get back to regularity. That is not the message we send to yeah. so many people in our society who we've like washed our hands and, right? We don't want to know from. So look at uh, 47. We'll finish this out. We, f we basically forget, right, about these people. We lock up, often warehousing them for decades and showing no interest in the question of what they would like to be when they return to the community. Maybe they'll be visited by a chaplain, social worker, family, or friends, but often not. Um, this is where he talks about correctional facilities locate, you know, p putting people in correctional facilities purposefully far away uh, from family. Drop down to the last sentence of that paragraph. On a huge scale, we literally lock them up and throw away the key. And we only begrudgingly support rehabilitation and education programs for people in prison. In contrast, Leviticus operates on the assumption that the goal is to bring the afflicted person back into the community as soon as she or he no longer poses a risk to others. 
uh, drop down to we can easily imagine that paragraph, then drop to the middle of that. We can think of the priest as being kind of like a spiritual coach, helping a person in need to do the things necessary to return to a healthy and positive life. As I read it, the entire thrust of Leviticus 14 values the return of the problematic person to the very heart of the community. <coughs> He's asking the question, what would it mean if we took Leviticus seriously? We don't have to deal with Sarat. <coughs> but as progressive Jews, if we want to take our values and our morals and our ethics seriously, this is a good call. <coughs> this remains an important call. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to stop with prison, right? I mean, that's one context. <clears throat> but I think of um, our history of mental illness, dealing with mental illness, right? It's been lock them up, and, and we don't want to see or hear or know from it, right? Um, there's, um, we've made great strides, and, you know, and there's progress, but... Um, well, there's a fundamental difference. The people that we're talking about in Leviticus didn't do anything wrong. It's assumed they did. That's why they got the curse. That's why they got it's the curse. It's assumed right, right, they sinned. Right. That's what I'm saying. If we, they hadn't assumed that they had, this could, there could be... No, the difference that was is, the, <clears throat> the difference is that the second method preserves hope. Yes. And hope yes. itself. Yes. 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 I'm sure there must be a million studies that show that. It, for that sure. And, and, and the opposite studies have been done and well documented. The opposite of hope is despair. Yeah. And when there's despair, oh my God. Go down. G Dog, who talked, right? Father Boyle, who talked at our Yom Kippur service, like had a lot to say about kids who feel like they have no future who feel like they'll be lucky to make it to 25 kids in the inner city, right? That they have no hope. So why not? Why not? Right. You know, sell drugs, do whatever, make the money, because you're going to be dead anyway, and there's no future anyway. Um, so we know what despair does, right? It wrecks any kind of working towards investing in a future because there is no sense of a future. And we know that hope is what gives so many people resiliency to survive anything, that happens to them because there's meaning. We can usually survive. Who was it? Said we can survive any what if there's a why. Mm -hmm. The why is about hope. It's about meaning. Um, something just struck me, and I don't want to go in a completely different direction, but this country is different in a lot of places in the world, in a lot of ways, and one and one of them is contradictory to, I think, Jewish values, and that is the sense of a community's responsibility for those who are in the community. And a lot of cultures, I think, particularly Asian ones, but probably many throughout the world, just have a very different view of <clears throat> the community's responsibility, the family's responsibility, first of all, then the tribe's or the community's responsibility for all the all the people that are there, you're just not going to have the kind of things that go on here. Right. So you're saying our country is different in that we are so focused on the individual that we don't take responsibility for each other as families, as communities, as neighborhoods. Me, yes, I, I would agree. I do think our own religion, at least, I mean, I think we could take, should be taking a message from. Uh, this book <laughs> in its entirety well, yeah. uh, that, 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 that uh, we are very much um, uh, a religious focus more on people relationships and community than on specific belief systems Abs absolutely and there are so, major national differences they frequently report on Germany having tremendous rehabilitation bringing the, the criminals back into the community. Their prison system is substantially different than ours. The purpose is different. And it's a value system. And Jewish... Uh, I'm not sure the Germans have adopted the Jewish value system. But that's the an, exa an example that's frequently compared right. to our system. Right. The, what's the purpose? Yes. Right? And Leviticus seems to be saying the purpose is to protect the common good with the full intention of bringing that person back when they're no longer yes. a threat. Yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison, like physical regularity versus 
as a person, but that their, that their behavior is uh, temporarily outside of that norm, and that through a ritual purification process, they can then return to what is considered by the community right Correct. I couldn't have said it better myself, right? That it's it's about a person exhibiting a behavior that puts one in a state of distance from, right, holiness. And so then one brings an offering and one goes through that ritual in order to come back into regularity. Because because I, myself, am not different. It's the state that I put myself in by my behavior. Right, which doesn't mean that they didn't do an action. Like Correct. They are still in charge of their action. And it doesn't mean something about me has fundamentally been altered. I'm still created in the image of God. I am still somebody, right, that can can do something about my guilt. And in this case, I mean guilt. I don't mean a feeling. I mean guilt versus innocence. All right. So you're having a real problem over there. Talk to me. Talk to me. No worries. No worries. We just haven't said it in the right way. In order for this to be valuable to me, I have to uh, um, grab onto the assumption that they did something wrong, no. or that they believed in those days that they did something wrong, and that's what makes it valuable to us today because we can bring it in parallel to prisons. Right. So, so where are you stuck? I'm stuck because we're dealing with a premise that isn't true. They weren't. Who decides what's true? For them, for them, we're just talking about them. Let's just separate them from us for a second, okay? We're over here, I get it, and I'm asking you to go here. You have to, you have to go to where they were. We don't have to be here, but that's where they well, were. Isn't, isn't our kind of Judaism all about not going back? No, no, no. The, the, our Judaism is about given the assumption that somebody's done something wrong. How do you treat them? Right. Somebody's done something wrong. What are the values and practices? What's the what now happens as a society for us around the person who did something wrong? They assumed these people did something wrong. We don't have to accept that assertion. But if they believe someone did something wrong, what we're asked what what he's talking about is so what does that mean? And he's saying what we do, you do something wrong, you go to a warehouse where you're going to be around violence. And you're going to be not a person anymore. You're going to be a number. You're going to be what crime you committed, how long your sentence is. You're separated from your family, and nobody gives a crap. And nobody cares about bringing you back. Now you've got a record. Now you're tainted. So he's saying if we took the values around the folks who thought somebody did something wrong, but the whole point, right, the whole point when somebody does something wrong is how do we, how do we bring them back? Back. Yes, yes, and that's such a valuable discussion. Right, so that's that's how, so, so as progressive Jews, our job is to go back and say, okay, we don't accept their fundamental premise, but, but given that they thought these people had done a sin or something, is there anything? And sometimes we go, no, there isn't. But in this case, I think there is a lot we can learn from how they then approached that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sorry. See, it just took us to say it right. It just takes us some time to say it right. I guess also going back to accepting their premise, uh, because the manifestation of you've done something wrong is getting this condition for which you're temporarily quarantined, there doesn't seem to be an actual distinction between sort of like degrees of wrongness, right? You just end up with the thing that gets you quarantined. So in some ways, you are you're, you are returned and rehabilitated to the community regardless of the severity of what it was that you did wrong, which, which even if our system, even if our system was working better than it does, isn't the case because you know, if you're, a, if you're a nonviolent offender who's been in prison and you serve your time, nobody really thinks about it. It doesn't necessarily have, I mean, it probably has some effect, but not as bad as if you've committed, say, a more serious crime. 
you've served your time, you come back, and now all of a sudden every box that you check on any, every form that you have to fill out <coughs> completely screws you over because, in a way, you haven't served your time. Right. So there's there's lots there that we don't have time to talk about, but, but I want to be clear that there is a, a criminal justice system that's separate from this where there is degrees yeah. of offense and then you're punished according to the severity sure. of the you're, offense. Right. I mean, look, right. even, Which is a little even, different than this. Even in their context, they have hanging offenses, so to speak. And not Stoning offenses. But I just wanted the example of society, this society preventing rehabilitation. Uh, I know of a case three kids stole things and they got caught and they had uh, restitution, they had to pay back as well as going to prison they had to pay back some amount of money well, two of those three were back in jail so they can't pay it back the third one was being rehabilitated, had a job he, as a partner has to pay not only the one-third, but has to pay the total amount back because the other two are in jail. So that works against yes. any concept yes. of rehabilitation. And works against hope. And works against hope. What if now the burden is so much, I'm not just paying my third, I'm paying all of it. What That can decimate the sense that I can get through this and get to the other side of this, pay my restitution, bring my lamb and be done, right? It, it goes right to the heart of I think you're right. I think there's so many hurdles that are set up for people to be. Recidivism, in some cases, is because it's easier right. to be in prison that, to, than to try to make it, right, in a world, in a society that doesn't support bringing people fully back. All right, so I'm going to close with uh, two things. One is uh, uh, Rabbi Alex Israel from uh, Pardes says, why does this phenomenon relate in particular to social violation, this idea of tzara'at? If you think about it, our skin, our clothing, and our homes are the membranes, the coverings that surround us and protect us. They protect us from the outside, but they also show us, they, they, but they also show us to the wider environment, right? We present to the wider environment through our home, our clothing, and our skin. If they are sealed too tight, they suffocate us. Too loose, we are vulnerable. They need to be calibrated for a perfect balance of exposure and insulation. In our world, skin, clothes, and homes are frequently used to make an impression on others. From tans to tattoos to Botox, People even try to adjust and adorn their skin. Similarly, our clothing and homes are ways to make a social impact. The ailment of tsara'at then is a symptom indicating that those personal boundaries have become corrupted or out of balance. So that was the first time I've ever really thought about both the home, yeah. I mean the home, the, the clothing and the skin as membranes, mm -hmm. both to protect us, but also it's how we present to the wider world so that sarat in that sense that of course that's where it would manifest at the at the at the margins right of us and the world which i thought was a very interesting insight into this and the other one i want to give you is remember the ritual and i know a lot of you like you people have been around a long time have heard this before but i can't ever do this part of the parsha without reading this we're going to take one bird right one bird is slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel Right? Then you shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the crimson stuff, and the hyssop, and dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered. He shall then sprinkle it on the one who's to be cleansed, right? And then what do they do with the live bird? So this is by Rabbi Tirza Firestone. These are our shamanic rituals. And the one that we have for coming back into the camp to bring our riches back into the machaneh has to do with two birds, a cedar branch, crimson wool, and hyssop, along with running water. Birds are a symbol of the soaring human spirit, the spirit that's alive within us. Notice that we take two. One is saved, and one is killed. Why is that? The one that's killed has to do with that part of our spirit, which has to be exchanged, sacrificed, 
so that we can fly free. In order to soar, in order to really have mochin de gadlut, expanded consciousness, some part of us must be sacrificed. Each one of us knows this in our own personal lives, and we certainly know it as a people, as a nation. On the way to being here now, renewing Judaism, we would say reconstructing Judaism, (laughs) we have suffered an incredible loss. One of our birds, the twin bird, has died, and on its wings come us. And having survived this loss, we know that we are never going to be the same. When we have come to consciousness, we know that we are inalterably changed by this sacrifice. Our twin soul, perhaps the innocence in us, or the people that we had to leave in order to be where we are now, is gone. We are marked. And so the Torah tells us in its deep wisdom that our wings are dipped in the blood of our twin soul. That blood is on our wings as we soar. But we do soar. And we're lifted off into the fields to fly freely. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.